We do have a sermon this morning entitled, uh, That's Going to Leave a Mark. Look at your neighbor, hit them in the face, and tell them that's going to leave a mark. <laughs> Not really. Uh, Leslie probably would, or Michelle, poor Michelle. But uh, the image, you remember that guy always saying, that's going to leave a mark. Uh, I did put an ouch on there uh, to be begin that statement. And uh, we're grateful this morning for... The Gospels that we're reading through, and last week uh, we talked about the Gospel of Matthew and how it's good news and how it should uh, cause us to have a positive attitude and all that. But this week we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's the second in the New Testament, um, and the Gospel of Mark is what we're uh, looking at as a text for all of our, our sermon today. So I'm not going to read you an entire book of Mark because that would take a lot of reading. Uh, but you can read that in its entirety in your Bible. Uh, you can actually, a uh, lot of new things out now with all the uh, technology that we have. You can actually uh, Bluetooth it in your car to the speakers, and it'll read through it for you. Pretty easy, simple. A lot of ways to read your Bible and to study your Bible today versus what it has been in times past. And we encourage you to do that. But the Gospel of Mark is about this guy named Mark. And some places in Scripture he's called John Mark. And Mark is this uh, disciple of Jesus that uh, is, is uh, one that really is kind of out of place. So as you read through your Bible and you see Matthew, he was truly one of the disciples. He was an apostle. He was one of Jesus' chosen 12 uh, individuals that he had to follow him. There was a lot more that did follow, but that was the 12 that he chose. And it, it's, uh, you know, kind of like in life, we think that uh, every organization we're in, maybe it's at work, maybe you're in a class at school, and you feel like the teacher's got a pet, right? A teacher's pet. And that's the way it would feel that if Jesus would pick 12 people and say, well, these 12, these are my favorite, these are one I'm choosing, that it seems like that they're the chosen ones or they're the ones the teachers pick. But that's okay, amen? In society, in life, in general, how many's ever been in that circumstance where you felt like somebody else was the pick and not you? Oh, I'm the only one. Everybody in here, you guys must have been the pick then. I don't know. If you didn't raise your hand, maybe you're the ones we're talking about here today. But no, Mark was this guy that uh, really wasn't in the pick of the 12, so he wasn't one of the, the most important during Jesus' ministry, but he was surely there. He was surely active in all the things that was happening, but as we look at this today and look at this gospel of Mark, I want us to look at it from the perspective that Mark was this one that was, was doing the work of ministry and performing the work of ministry and was obedient, but he wasn't really one of the out front, outspoken or the chosen ones, but he still performed and worked. And sometimes in life, it feels like when others are chosen and we're not, or others are more important than us, and maybe they're, they won the class president, maybe you run for the office of class president in your class, and maybe you got the other person got voted, and you felt like they was more superior than you, and then later on in life, you got to the job, and you went out to the workplace, and, and your boss was there, and it seems like he always chose that other person over you for that uh, uh, new uh, uh, position that's coming up, and maybe he's going to give you the you was hoping for the foreman job or the bump in pay or any of that, and they chose somebody else. So it kind of, after time, that sets in to where that we feel like we are uh, got an inferiority complex, right? It's a, a term that's used in, in, uh, in psychology and stuff that there's an inferiority complex, and that isn't just what it is. It's a complex. Look at your neighbor and say, well, you're pretty complex. Yeah, you're, you're a lot of complexity in this room today. 
So Mark had this, I feel like that he probably had this inferiority complex uh, in ministry because he wasn't one of the out front chosen, uh, blessed ones, but he was still active. So in this inferiority complex that we deal with, that we are challenged with, if we look through Scripture in its entirety, we'll see all over Scripture, through the Old Testament and New Testament, people that dealt with inferiority complex, that they had this issue of others are more important than I. And as we talk about that, I want us to put that into place into Bethesda. So I want us to think from our perspective today, sitting here at Bethesda, that this Scripture was written for our good, for our benefit, Right? The Bible teaches, Paul told Timothy, all scripture is given for inspiration. It's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So all of scripture is written for us. And as we think about this, Bethesda having an inferiority complex. Sometimes as a church, we may look down the street and see some larger church that's accomplishing big things and doing great things. And we look at them and think, man, they've really got it going on. They've got that. They've got this. They've got this happening, that happening, this ministry, that ministry. And if we start to compare ourselves with other ministries, then we're going to have an inferiority complex because, you know, here we are, a church of about 100 and some people between both campuses, uh, one church with two locations. But we could have that inferiority complex as a church, right? And as individuals, we can have that. And as we think about that, the inferiority complex, it will stop us from doing what we're called to do if we allow it to overtake our life or to rule in our life. And as I think about that, Bethesda isn't, hasn't always been what it is today. What am I saying? This church began in 1997 in the little building in Vanceburg campus. It's a 40 by 60 metal building that was a garage. They purchased that garage building. They made it into a church. They built walls in it, built bathrooms. It was a, a paint shop. It's where a, a guy used to be kind of like Jason, just go out there and you fix cars all week and you paint it, and that's his garage. And it, it was Greg's uh, family at one time, and his brother-in-law, uh, Jim Horsley and Greg's still friends. He goes up and they deal with old car gyms up in South Shore now. But that our church building was originally his uh, antique car remodeling shop. So he was rebuilding cars. You could take something that was broke, rusted, beaten down, and transform it by putting energy and passion and, and, and your abilities into it. And as you do that, you can make this glorious thing come back to life what was once dead, right? So in, when the church first began, it really uh, began to grow there in that campus. And, and Sister Garthus Swergeon, her and Tom was the pastors, and they was leading the congregation. And things was going really good and growing. And then the church had a hiccup. The church had some heartburn. Has anybody ever had heartburn? I wake up with heartburn every now and then. If Leslie feeds me hot dogs with spicy sauce, I'm going to wake up with heartburn, right? So sometimes churches have some heartburn. They have a hiccup. They have a bump in the road. And as this bump in the road happens, Sister Gartha and, and Tom decides that they feel like that their ministry at Bethesda is over, and they resign the pastor. And when they resign, the church basically disassembles and breaks up and falls away. And within just a short order, there's only two people attending a service. So it was a church of 40, 50 people. Next thing you know, there's two people coming. Still open the door every Sunday, come down, open the door, turn the heat on, turn the lights on, get everything set out. Maybe if a visitor comes, and they come and they set up church every Sunday. It was my mom and Joe Sheber. Uh, Joe had moved, married uh, Alice Dummett, 
And uh, they, they lived out on the ridge by my brother out there. And Mom and Joe was the only two coming and attending service. So Mom would come in, her and Joe, and they would stand there. And, and Mom would get up, and she would teach Sunday school. And then she would sing a song. And then she would sit down, and Joe would get up and preach a message with just two people in the room. Seems insignificant, don't it? Can you imagine what it would feel like after you feel like the church is on a decline and, and everybody else is left and you're the only one left standing that is you're there and you say, no, I'm still going to come every Sunday. And this was for months. It wasn't like a one-time occasion. This was for months. My mom and Joe would come, set up church, Sunday school, song, sit down, Joe get up and preach. And as this happened, they kept the doors open. Bethesda would not have existed today if they would have not been faithful in the moment they was in. Amen? So how important is it to do your, fulfill your calling and be obedient to what God calls you to do? And as, as we think about this, this inferiority complex, it would, it would seem, well, well, why am I doing that? Well, why am I driving down there and keeping the church doors open? It seems insignificant. It seems like I'm just insignificant. I just want this one little part that keeps the door open. If I'm the only really reason that I've got this inferiority complex anyway, I'm just going to let it go and I'm going to be done with it, right? It's easy to walk away in that circumstance. It's easy to allow our inferiority complex to let us quit something God has called us to do. So as Bethesda, I want us to think about that, that as a church, we wouldn't even exist today or have two campuses with people in both campuses today. I don't know how many people was at Vanceburg this morning, but it was a pretty good crowd, and we got a good crowd here today. So you can think the growth from two people in 2000 till today, where we've got a pretty good-sized congregation coming and attending and being faithful to the body. Why? Because two people stayed the course. Amen? It seems insignificant that the things they was doing then and maybe the lesson she was teaching and the Sunday school lesson, if you only know you're going to have one person to show up that morning, maybe you don't put all the effort into learning that lesson. Maybe you don't worry about the songs set all that much. Or maybe you don't, uh, Joe getting up and preaching, maybe he thinks, well, Bonnie's going to be the only one anywhere. I'm, I'm not going to really study. But I know their actions and I know how both of their character is and I've witnessed them through life that they were both diligent in the moment of even insignificance. Amen? And if we do the same, imagine what we can do. The Bible says if one can put 1,000 to flight, two can put 10,000. Amen? Think of what a congregation our size today would be able to accomplish if we all had the dedication, determination, and the fortitude to move forward in the calling that God has for us today. And I'm grateful as a congregation that everybody here, a lot of people here are involved in ministry. They, uh, Cindy does the door greeting thing. Pretty faithful. Every Sunday you come in, Cindy's going to be there unless Bobby drags her out and takes her to the flea market or something, but that's okay. Amen. It's okay to miss every now and then. I told Lathan a minute ago, he's been working a shutdown for several months and hasn't been here. I said, I, I thought you might not even know how to get back up here. I didn't, you'd maybe lost track or something. But sometimes maybe Cindy stands back here at the door and she thinks, you know, well, it's not all that important. It's just shaking people's hand and making them feel welcome when they come to church. Seems insignificant. But imagine what church would be, feel like if you come into it. Everybody was sitting here and everybody was huddled around in their little groups and not talking to each other. Amen? Amen? What if it sets the tone for how we interact with each other prior to the service? It's important for a body of Christ to touch each other, to hug each other, to uplift each other, to build each other up and encourage one another. Amen? Amen. So today, think about that. It may seem insignificant in that, well, that's not really important, just shaking somebody's hand. It's really significant in the kingdom of God. Amen? Jesus chose disciples, and he gave them different jobs. What's your job? What's he called you to do? 
Be actively involved in what Jesus has called you to do. Mark could have felt inferiority, and he could have said, you know, there's no reason or purpose, or I'm not one of the chosen 12, I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. But he did something anyway. But my mother said this morning, and she spoke up at, at Vanceburg, and, and she wanted to talk to the crowd about something that Sister Garth asked her to do. Back in, when Sister Garth was here from 97 until 2000. So, Mom, you, you got to come up here and share again. Uh, so you can't share with one campus what you don't share with the other. So everybody invite Bonnie. Say, come on up, Bonnie. <laughs> no, you got to come. If you don't talk in the mic really close so everybody can hear you too. You want me to hold it? No, that's okay. I will. Okay. I was sitting back there, and while he was preaching, he was telling of, you know, how we need to be diligent in things and to try things even when you're feeling like it. you might try for a couple of weeks and quit, you know. But I did that. Sister Gartha was down there, and she asked me to go get the people at the nursing home. And I did not want to go. I'm not an early bird. I'm not someone that likes to go early, as you all know. I'm sure everyone's told you. <laughs> but... She would want me to get up early, get down there, get the people out of the nursing home, bring them to the church. And it was hard. I mean, it was like I had to do it by myself. And it was like three or four of them. And I'd have to get them out in the car and bring them out. And the people at the nursing home would help me. But when I get to church, sometimes there was no one there would even help come out and get them to bring them in. And I'd have to try to get them all in the church. So then I was having time with that. And I was like, I just don't like this. You know, I'm having to do this every week. No, I guess not. I did it for a few weeks. Before long, I remember coming off that hill down there at Vanceburg, come down that hill to go to church and go get them people first, and I was feeling joy. I couldn't wait to get there. I wanted to go so bad, it was just like a, a joy overcame me, and it's just from being obedient and doing what God had asked Gartha to ask me to do. I didn't want to do it, and God knew I didn't want to do it. I like my little comfort zone back around the back seat and nobody see me. You know, that's what I like. But God put me in that position, and I'm telling you, if you'll be faithful, and do. There's times that he's going to ask you to do things, and you're going to think, I don't want to do that, or it's going to take my time, or it's going to cost me extra time, or I'm going to have to get up early, or I'm going to have to go late, or I'm going to, you know, it's going to be times like that. But to grow our church, we're going to have to do that. And uh, I just thank God that he helped me be faithful in it. I know God blessed me with the strength to do it, the ability to do it, and then he even gave me joy. I mean, it was just a joy to come off that hill, go get them people. I couldn't wait to get them. I was hoping even more were going to come. I had to get more cars and bring more. and It just become a joy, and it will for you. You'll just hang in there, and if he asks you, get in there and try. At least try, <laughs> okay? In Jesus' name. Amen. So she's always feels inferior. Uh, in ministry and everything, but she's been faithful. Uh, it's not just because she's my mother, but um, I've witnessed it all my life. And I thank God for it because it sets the tone for me to always be faithful, even sometimes when I don't feel like it. Amen? Because there's times when we don't feel like it. It's okay. That's natural, and that's part of the human experience. But knowing uh, to be faithful is, is a good thing. And one thing in that, that she would haul and, and take... Uh, the people from the nursing home in her own car and you know some people would worry well what's the insurance company say about that and what's this and what that we could find a thousand reasons why we wouldn't do something like that right 
But ministry is sometimes uh, doing the impossible, even though it seems insignificant. Amen? So the insignificant leads to the impossible. So as I'm saying that, mom would go down there and get the people from the nursing home. And, and sometimes you go through a nursing home, and if you go do visits at the nursing home, I know the youth a couple years ago, they went there and done bingo uh, and different things and with the nursing home residents. And, man, it just tickles them to death to get to see somebody. My great-grandmother uh, lived her last probably 10 years at least in the nursing home. Opie was my great-grandmother's name, and she lived in the nursing home down there. If you go to see her, just make her day. And a lot of times, uh, it's been a little while since I've been down there, but a while, a couple years ago, I would go on a periodic basis, just go down and sit in the center section at the nursing home down at Vanceburg, and whoever would pull up beside of me, that's who I would talk to. I didn't go with no intention of thinking I'm going to talk to this one or that one or whoever. I would just go and sit in a chair. And I promise you, if you'll go down there and sit in a chair, somebody will wheel up beside of you, and they'll start a conversation. And you'll be amazed at some of these 80- and 90-year-old people with some of the stories you'll hear that you will never hear unless you expose yourself to their wisdom that they've got. And it's, a, uh, it's just a, an encouragement and it's, it's good to be the body of Christ, and that's who Jesus was. If we want to know who Jesus would be today, he would be visiting the fatherless, the homeless, the, those uh, uh, people that we went last week up, the homeless people up in Portsmouth. Jesus would be ministering to people that are without. Amen? It's easy for the church to get focused on what we're going to do for each other in here, and I'm grateful for every one of you, and I love every one of you, and I want to do anything I can for every one of you, but Jesus wants us touching those that are untouched by society. Amen? And I know there's people that uh, are in here that's family works at the nursing home down there. Then uh, Bradley worked at the nursing home for a while, and she's seen all this stuff firsthand. And it, it, it's something that needs done. But this nursing home ministry that mom would just go and pick them up and take them to the church, can you imagine? Uh, every one of them goes, you go down there and talk to them, they'll all say, man, I want to just go home. They're, they're looking for a way out, ain't they, Bradley? They, they're, it's like they're in prison, and they just want a way out. And for somebody to come and pick them up in a car, take them to a church, it gets them out of that normal of everyday life inside of there, and they get experienced church. It was a great thing. But in that, later on when Sister Gartha, after I got saved in, in, in 1999, so it was about the same time that Gartha had left, and that's when Mom and, and Joe was having church by themselves, and I was attending a church at Raceland that was run about 450 people at the time. So I had a different experience in that original part of my Christianity that I was at this big church and had a youth group of 70 people and there were just all kinds of great things happening. It was amazing. It was an amazing experience for me. But uh, Sister Garth, I, I started going and, and, and meeting with her and talking with her at her house and her and Tom and, and they would encourage me and I felt called to preach and I, I would explain to them, man, I feel this calling, I feel this stirring to be in ministry and they would encourage me even though I was attending another church and, and here they was down here and, and Garth told me one time, well, let's go have a revival at the nursing home because she was working there as like an assistant or something and I said, okay, let's do it. So we took a sound system down there and, and set up and had a revival service. We had singing and and all this stuff happened, and just like a church service for those at the nursing home, and we had a lot of people got saved, and we had to baptize some of them in bathtubs, and it was just an awesome experience to get to see that happen. And it may seem insignificant to a lot of people, but if we think about it from the perspective that these were 80, 70, 80, 90-year-old people that were in a nursing home that didn't know Jesus, how important is it for them to hear the gospel, the good news, to have somebody explain to them their ability to accept Jesus 
lot different than this one. She got a long way to go. Dad. She said dad a while ago. She ain't going to say dad now. But it seems insignificant sometimes, some of these actions that we take as a church, as ministry leaders. And sometimes it seems unimportant, some of the things we do. And, and you never know the outcomes of what you're doing. So as I think about that from Gospel of Mark, that Mark may have seemed in fear. He may have seen not as much. He wasn't one of the chosen picked ones. And maybe there's somebody in this room today that's sitting here thinking, well, Pastor, you're explaining my life because I've, I've never been one of the ones that got picked first for the basketball team whenever they was getting ready to play a game. Maybe you're like me. I was always the last one standing when they was choosing teams. You know, they get through everybody else, and I'll be the only one standing there. They're like, well, I guess I'll take Ben for my team. That, that's real encouraging, isn't it? That's why. Don't be that person. But sometimes in ministry, it gets where that we don't understand, and it seems impossible, and it seems like it's just too much. It seems insignificant. It seems like I'm in fear. But God's wanting us to see today that there's more to the end of the story than the beginning of the story. So as I say that, let's look at Mark and think about his life not being chosen, not being one of the pick. And there's other people in the Bible too. If we look back in the Old Testament, the best one I could find for this sermon today that as I was looking through and thinking about, you're going to have to get down. You're breaking my arm. Oh, you want the other arm? Either way, it's your choice. She's got her shoes untied. So somebody can tie them shoes or pant legs or whatever it is. It's got strings on it. Uncle Sammy, that's your job. As in the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's Moses. So as I look back through the Old Testament and saw and look for this inferiority type person that has an inferior complex that's got these issues going on, it has to be Moses, and, and as I was looking and thinking through his life and, and what all had happened in Moses' life, I, I thought about one of my friends at work that, that uh, he was a guy that I worked with, buddies with, and, and worked side by side with a lot of times, and he was a skilled craftsman. I mean, he's a really good welder. He's a good uh, pipe fitter. He was a good plumber. He, he's really good at medical gas, and he taught me a lot of stuff because I was an apprentice working with him, and, and he's a really great guy, but I, I would always do... Uh, the reverse, what do they call it? Leslie, you helped me this morning. Reverse psychology, right? It's like parents. You use, anybody in here use reverse psychology with your kids? You try it, right? So I would use that on my, my buddy, you know, once I become older. And I would always tell him, you've got a superiority complex. He'd just look at me like, what? Because he's really inferior to everybody, but he's good. But he didn't recognize his, his own value. So he, he thought less of himself. But he, he was a guy that... Just an awesome guy that raised both his kids by himself. His wife abandoned him, and he raised two kids by himself, and he was always home and, and doing stuff and raising them kids. And I just thought the world of him because he was like the stellar human, in my opinion. And I loved this guy. And I would always tell him, though, you got a superiority complex because, you know, he's six-foot-something big tall guy and broad shoulders and bl baby blue eyes and just a good-looking guy, you know. And I was like, you got a superiority complex. No, I don't. Then he'd get mad about it because really he had an inferiority complex. So I was using this reverse psychology to get him to think more about himself. Didn't really ever work, but I tried. And I just wondered, in church, 
how often do we encourage each other? I was using reverse psychology out in, 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 this, in this worldly setting, but what about in the church? Should we go use reverse psychology? Maybe I'll walk up to Teddy and be like, oh, you're a big dunce and whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Maybe so you try to use reverse psychology to tell him, yeah, he's doing great things, right? He, he's a good guy. He's raising kids. He's a family man. He, he, he helps the community. He does all kinds of good stuff, right? In the church world, do we use reverse or do we just go direct? Why don't we tell Teddy, thank you, for all the time and effort he puts in to helping kids. And he called Leslie and tried to get her to sing for him at the, at the kids' thing. And, and just trying to do stuff to encourage kids. That's a good thing, right? Let's give Teddy a hand, everybody. <laughs> encouraging. So why isn't the church this encouraging place that we're designed to be? Kind of weirds me out, Dusty. See Dustin Albee. Weekly, come in here on Tuesday nights at this campus. Sometimes people bring food. Sometimes people don't. Sometimes Albie and Dusty bring food. They make up games. They do all this stuff for teenagers. Sometimes there'll be four kids here. Sometimes there's two kids here. Sometimes might be 15 kids here. It's just all up and down and railroad and all over bouncing, banging around. And they've been doing it for years. Tuesday nights. Out of five years, I asked him this morning, how many services have you missed on Tuesday night? How many Tuesdays have you been absent from the youth group? Five years, correct? Everybody say, that's faithful. Five years and have missed one Tuesday. That puts me to shame. I missed all kinds of Sundays. Amen? Because they're faithful. And sometimes they come in here, and they might come in, there might be two teenagers here, and they give their lesson, give their plan, do the game, talk their talk, give them an encouraging word, and walk out. And sometimes they go home, and I'm sure they feel like, man, that was, that, did that really matter? Does that really make a difference? And, and am I really doing what I'm called to do? To, and feel like inferior, because you go down to youth groups, talking to people down in Lexington and Louisville, they might have 150 in their youth group. And you're sitting there talking about, well, yeah, well, we had two kids at our last one, and we talked about this and talked about that. They've got 150 that's got youth leaders and all this other stuff going on. It's easy to feel in fear. But the deal is, just like I told this morning, Debo was sitting on the front row at Bethesda this morning. And Dustin Albies has put, I don't know how many hours into Debo's life. And Debo wasn't born on third base. He was born on home plate without a bat. If you know what I'm talking about. And Dustin Albee has encouraged him and strengthened him and just been a, a shining light, a city set upon a hill that a young guy that didn't have nothing was going to die and go to the devil's hell if he didn't know Jesus. And they've been faithful to him. Now Debo's going through a situation in his life. He's got this friend that he loves that he's a fishing buddy. Just recently diagnosed with cancer. And Debo sits and he, he messages him. I'm going to pray for this guy. How much is it worth in those inferior moments to teach Debo how to pray that he's praying for his friend that's battling cancer? You see, sometimes those insignificant moments in the length of time is proven to be very important to the heartbeat of God. And a lot of people in this room, it may seem like, well, Pastor, all I ever do is mow the yard, or all I ever do is clean the carpet, or Pastor, all I do is shake a hand, or Pastor, this or that, and it seems insignificant. But in the grand scheme of things, you don't know. 
the impact you're making on the kingdom of God and how important it is to the ministry in its entirety. Just, just so many people in this room that I could just name. Rachel doing the BGMC thing and marking and, and her and Mary, they, they always decorate the, both facilities. They Both campuses get decoration and they make sure that the, the wreaths are on the front door and all that kind of stuff. And it seems insignificant probably when they're here by themselves. And it's like, is anybody even going to notice this anyway? As a church, we should walk up and pat them on the back and say, thank you for serving our church. Amen. Thank you for cleaning, Greg. On a, on a, Michelle's leads some of that, and, and you know, they walk around and they vacuum this carpet, and sometimes they're sitting there, and I'm sure if you've ever vacuumed here, you'll know that there's people that bites their fingernails and spits them in the floor, and you, you clean up all kinds of mess. It was Carver come up there and left me a little treat while ago. I didn't know if it was a booger or a piece of, of a sucker she had. I didn't know. I just picked it up as green and slimy. <laughs> I put it in a, in a, I got it in my pocket right here in case anybody wants it. There you go. It may seem insignificant, but it matters. And Mark surely felt that way, and I'm sure Moses did because Moses was a guy that walked up on a hillside and he had run away because he had killed a guy and he was a murderer. And he, he ran away and, and he left society behind and went to this whole new nation. And he meets this girl and he marries her and has some kids. And his father-in-law says, here, i got a good important job for you. Take these sheep out there in that pasture and go out there every day and make sure they're fed doesn't seem important, does it? I'm sure walking around thinking, man, this is stupid. He's raised in royalty, and now he's out here walking around with a shepherd's pole with a bunch of sheep. And all of a sudden, there's this big fire on the side of the hill, and it's a burning bush. And he walks by that, and he thinks, he turns to the side. The Bible scripture says that he turns to the side, and he sees this burning bush, and he goes up to it, and he just stands there and stares at it. He stops in a moment to see what is this thing that's not normal. Pretty insignificant, really, a fire on the side of a hillside in a desert. That's pretty normal. But he walks up to this thing, and there's something different. This is different. Something's clicking. Something's telling me on the inside of me. My spirit man is moving this. Tell me something's different. And he walks up, and he stands there and stares at it. And all of a sudden, out of this burning bush comes a voice. And it's God. And it's God that tells him, I'm going to tell you, Moses, go back down to Israel or to Egypt, and tell my children of Israel that you're going to take them out and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses just looks like, huh, you're right. I murdered a guy over there. I'm wanted. I'm on the FBI's most wanted list. You're telling me to go back and talk to the president? No thanks. Seems insignificant, doesn't it? I don't understand. Well, God, God's saying, I'm telling you, Moses, go back, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he keeps insisting it. And finally, Moses gets a picture and he says, but God, do you not know that I can't go and talk in front of the king? You know why? Because I stutter. I'm not the best spokesman for this job. It's kind of like me. I can't speak in front of people. I'm not a public speaker. But all of a sudden, God calls you to preach. What do you got to do? You got to get up and get the microphone, even if you don't know what to say, and then just talk all you talk because God gives you the words anyway. Amen? It's not me speaking. I can't come up with this stuff. It's God. It's only God. Because with, if it's up to my abilities, I'll be sitting down. My abilities are way gone. But Moses there, finally, he, he accepts it, and he says, okay, God, I'll go if you, if you give me a, a help speaker, if you give me a guest speaker to come along with me. Okay, take your brother Aaron. So he goes. So this insignificant Moses, moment in Moses' life 
Here he is standing on this hillside looking at this bush, deciding, do I go or do I don't go? Pretty insignificant. Doesn't really mean much. But he actually goes and does it. And when he goes and does it, he stands before Pharaoh, and you know the plagues and all the story and all that. We've seen the movie, right? The old-fashioned movie. If you've never watched it, you ought to watch it. But then Moses ends up, he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Next thing you know, Moses gets mad and tired after the different plagues, and finally he says, take your people and get out of here. So now Moses is walking across this desert scene in Egypt, leading six million people. They were slaves today, but now because of one man's obedience standing on a mountain, hearing the voice of God from a burning bush that seemed insignificant, now he's leading the charge of six million people coming to freedom. What if we look at that today in this room and think, well, sometimes God speaks to me and it seems insignificant. I don't see that it matters all that much. But if we're obedient, what if you would lead six million people to freedom out of slavery? And we know what that symbolizes in the New Testament. Slavery is sin. Amen? Sin has you encapsulated. It has you in bondage. But the freedom of Jesus is I can walk into freedom. What if you are like a Billy Graham that just woke up on a, during a Sunday school lesson and, and asked the preacher, well, what are you talking about? And I want to see Jesus as my Savior. And Billy Graham gets down on his knees and prays. And when he gets up and he walks out the door, the next thing you know, he leads millions to Jesus. What if it's one of our little ones down here in this basement? And a Sunday school teacher or children's church teacher, Amy, could come back and say, well, it just seems insignificant, just a bunch of little snotty-nosed kids. Right? What if one of them's the next Billy Graham? How important is it? It doesn't matter. It's about the freedom that you're bringing to their life. The insignificant will surely bring the impossible to be. And who are we to say? When God speaks through a fiery bush. I'm just telling you today. If you hear God's voice. Listen. Amen. Maybe it's been where that you walked away from him. You haven't listened for a long time. And God is saying today. My still small voice is still small. And it may seem insignificant. But if you accept me as your savior. I'll bring you to freedom. Jesus is the answer to our problems. Amen. Mark was this disciple, insignificant, really shouldn't even wrote anything down if you go to the world standards. Who should have wrote the New Testament? Should have been the important ones, right? Last week we read one of them, Matthew, the tax collector. He wrote one of them, the Gospels. But now this week we're talking about Mark, insignificant. But can you imagine Mark hearing God say, write these words down? through the Holy Spirit, inspiring him to write down some words. And Mark's sitting there with that paper and pencil thinking, I'm so insignificant, I don't matter. What I'm doing doesn't matter. Maybe it's God's voice saying, open up your home to some foster kids. You think, well, that's just insignificant. That's just that one little baby. It's them two little brothers and sisters. But if it's God's voice... What will it be? Mark sits there and he begins to write down the words. And he writes all of it down. And I can imagine at the end of it, we all need confirmation. Amen? 
We all need confirmation. So I can imagine Mark with this letter, these 20-some chapters here. He's got, he's got wrote down, and, and Mark, and he takes it, and he, and he hands it, and he goes these 16 chapters, I think. It's going through my mind here. 16, I think. So he, he takes off, and he hands this handwritten note that he just wrote about the gospel, that his account. I'm, I'm sure he probably handed it to a, to a friend and be like, Josiah, man, use pals, man. Here, just read over that and see what you think. I imagine Josiah reading through that and thinking, man, yeah, this, this is pretty good, Jesus. Mark, you're, you're talking about Jesus, and this is the real account. It's a pretty good deal. And he hands it back, and Mark's like, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. That's just something I wrote. It's pretty insignificant. And I imagine Mark thinking, man, I need somebody to signify in my life, somebody that's important, and that person to me is my pastor, Pastor Wells. James Wells from Raceland Assembly of God that pastored there for years. He was my pastor. He's still my pastor today. And if I ask him something, he'll tell me yes or no, and I'll take his word for it. And I can imagine Mark taking this up to who his father in the spirit is, is Peter, the greatest disciple in most people's minds. If that's your spiritual father, he takes it up to Peter and says, here, Peter, read this, see what you think. And I can imagine Peter reading through that, and he's like, man, this is awesome, Mark. This is good stuff. I think we ought to make copies of this and spread it around to some of the churches. And they take that paper and they run it through the press and there was no press then, but they had to re-handwrite all of it. Passed it out and all these churches got it. Mark's sitting there thinking, man, it's just a few words. Seems insignificant, don't it? He didn't know that 2,000 years later that a pastor in rural Appalachia would be using his words as a whole, as a group, to encourage others to do the impossible when it seems insignificant. We don't know. We don't have to know. All we got to do is be obedient and go pick up the people at the nursing home if that's what God tells you to do. Amen? If you're Moses standing on that hillside and he says, go get my six million people and bring them out into freedom, go get them. If he's got you sitting there telling you, get up and help Cindy to Dora and come here next week and tell her, hi, Cindy, I'm here to help. I'd like to be a help to you, and, and I'd like to encourage people as they come through the door. I'll stand there and smile. If you're the most fuddy-duddy person, probably ain't a good place for you at the door. Amen? <laughs> Cindy, cool. All these words I'm reading right now. Talks about me, right, Dusty? Uh, I read in this book. Me and Dusty's reading it together, and it, it it's like it's painting a picture of me all the time. It's like, man, ah, quit talking about me. And here I am today, encouraging you. Don't use reverse psychology in church. Tell people the truth, because there's a lot of people in this room that needs to hear. Because sometimes they think what they're doing is insignificant, and they need somebody in the church saying, "Man, I'm glad you do that." Cindy takes cookies to people. Anybody ever got cookies? First time you attended Bethesda? Anybody ever got cookies? Nobody in here's got cookies? Diet going? Oh, there's a lot of people got cookies. Oh, now the truth's coming out. You ought to get cookies, right? We need to be a church that gives away cookies. Cindy needs help with that. She don't need to do it all herself. There's people in this room. How many can bake cookies when they're in little sheets and all you got to do is put them in the oven and set the temperature and the time? I'm not talking about kneading them together and making all of it and all that. I'm talking about just putting them on a sheet and they automatically cook. But man, they're cooked with love and they, they're awesome. 
We've had people come in, man, that was the best cookies ever. It's like, just go down to the store and get one of them little packs. It's not hard. They know it. Put it on 350 for 21 minutes, you're good. It's going to be golden. It just seems right, don't it? Because people don't get goodwill gestures much. And what else should they get from a church but the church say, I love you, and you may feel insignificant, but we know the place you need to be, and that's called Bethesda. Amen? Let's be that church. Won't you stand with me? That's going to leave a mark is the name of this sermon. And the reason that's the name of it is because we all can leave a mark on somebody that we encounter. And Mark may not have understood what he was doing when he was writing all that down, but he left a mark on the world. And now his is one of the four Gospels that made it in the New Testament. Think about that. I feel insignificant, but he wrote this letter and it ended up in the Bible. How amazing is our God to take our insignificance and make it something very important. There's people in this room, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. There's people in this room that will say, Pastor Ben, you hit the nail on the head. and Today, this message is for me, and I'm a person that I kind of have an inferiority complex, and I... I think less of myself than I ought to and today Jesus is encouraging me. You've lifted me up and I want to be that person that will do the impossible even though it seems insignificant. Is there anybody here to raise your hand and say, that's me. I'll do the insignificant so that I can see the impossible. Amen. Thank you for those hands. Thank you for those hands all over the room. I want to pray for you right now as your pastor. Father, I thank you for this great group of people. Lord, I thank you for this great congregation of Bethesda between two campuses. God, I know that your hand is upon our life. God, that you've called us here to be assembled together here. And God, I pray for the people in this room that has lived their whole life feeling like that they don't matter. <laughs> that life is too hard. God, I pray today that you would liberate them just the same as you liberated those children of Israel from the slavery that they was in in Egypt. And God, you would bring us into this freedom. And God, even in the insignificant moments in life when they think that nothing else matters, God, that you'll prove to them that they are important in your eyes. God, give them a destiny to be your spokesman, your spokeswoman to others that's needing freedom. Help us to do the insignificant so we can see the important. In Jesus' name, amen.